a couple of hours for this conversation. Hey, so. a whole couple of hours, mate. You don't understand. You're going to ask me one question. It will take half an hour to answer it. So, oh God, seriously, can I go home tonight? Um, so, hi, I'm Akoya Jampi, founder of the British Blacklist. And I'm here with, I mean, he's got so many accolades or skill titles under his name. So I will let my guest introduce himself and cover whichever titles he feels he wants to cover. Go for it. I, I, I like what you've done there because you've put the, the onus on me to yeah. either appear humble or do the opposite, right? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and also, I, I now I'm thinking, how many, how many accolades and things can I use? Well, uh, my name is Dominic Buchanan and I am a, a producer. If other people are so kind, they would put me in the filmmaker category because I'm a real producer. I'm not someone that just does one aspect of something in terms of producing. I, I am a real producer that does everything. And I am a, a BAFTA winner, apparently. Um, I still don't have the BAFTA, but by the time your audience hear this, maybe I'll have it. I've won a Peabody Award. I've won an RTS Award. My films have won awards at South by Southwest, Grand Jury Prize, Sundance, Audience Award at Tribeca Film Festival, amongst other things. <laughs> I started off humble and I veered off into- Because Aaron. people tend to be like, oh, I'm just a writer, I'm just an actor. And I'm like, don't say you're just, because just just diminishes everything and what goes into it. But no, no, you didn't start off humble, don't try it. You said, I'm a real producer. I do speak, I'm taking notes. Shots fired is what I'd like to say to people out there in the ether. Shots fired. I don't even know who they fired at, but it's one of those things when, you know when rappers are like, if they got offended, it was for them. Okay, so what does a real producer do? What makes you the real producer, Dominic? Well, what it means is I'm involved from day one to the very last. I would never pretend I'm there from day zero unless that really happens. So day zero is obviously the idea's inception, mm. you know, so that's the writer or writer-director. And I'm not the type of producer that would pretend to help birth ideas. But let's say that idea is born on day zero. Day one, they bring it to me. And then I'm on board all the way through. In fact, almost the last man standing. And... To give you a sense of this, I made a film, my second film, Lilting, which the writer-director Hong brought to me, um, the spring of 2011. To this very day, and I literally mean to this very day, I'm dealing with the after effects of this film because I'm the sole producer on it. And it's not even exciting things, it's like admin things, revenues and stuff like that. Fortunately, it has some revenues, but the collection account collapsed and Dominic, I'm the producer. Stop, stop, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> Because literally, don't try it, because I'm not a real producer. What the hell is a collection account? <laughs> when you make a film, the money's got to go somewhere. Okay. So you, you, you typically hire a collection accountant to collect that money for you. And there's, there's reputable ones. And we thought we signed up to a reputable one, but they went into administration. Oh, shit. Yeah. Wait, hold on. So that's, obviously the accountants know this is like, obviously TBB, this is a thing. So there's like, there's literally a role for everything. I did not know there's such thing as someone going to say, this is my job. I collect money for films. Yeah, yeah, totally. And oh. they disperse it to all the net profit participants. I mean, by the way, in answering this question, I've jumped through to the very, very what end. I'm just giving you a sense of like, you know, nine years later, I'm dealing with my second film still. Okay. In being a real producer, we're going to stick with this and drive it home. <laughs> in being a real producer, when did you understand that you needed a collection accountant? What was the day that you're like, oh, that's what I need? It probably would have been a year before that because I worked for a producer. I was his assistant slash de facto head of development slash 
office manager slash if I didn't turn up to the office, no one was in the office. Wow. <laughs> you, were, you were the office. I was the office. So in being in that environment and absorbing a lot of information, I got to see the films that this producer had made. And the most recent one at that time that I joined, he made a film called The Duchess okay. a couple of years before I joined. So he allowed me to just learn, I guess, by osmosis or being there or, you know, things that he felt like I should learn. So in terms of the collection account, side of things, I can't pretend I knew what it was, mm. but I heard about it because you typically don't talk about that type of thing until, you know, the financiers are in place and the, the sales agents are in place and all that type of stuff, right? Yeah. That's when you're like, oh, you need that thing for that thing. So I can't pretend like I went to film school and they, they didn't tell you about that stuff. I mean, they don't. You didn't go to film school? No. Hey, how can you put the a real producer and he didn't go to film school. I think that's why I can call myself a real producer. <laughs> I know you set me up for that, but thank you. <laughs> it's good though, because you know what, you know, we all don't necessarily go for the traditional route. Did you do that? I want to make films first and then realize you're more of a producer than a filmmaker or are you still a filmmaker? Do you have directing and writing in your, in your pocket as well? There are ideas that I have that I've put in a drawer. I haven't written um, these out. They're just noted down and in my head, it's like, well, if one day that's something that I decided to turn towards and I felt confident enough to do it, then they're there. But I also have made the agreement with myself internally that if I find a filmmaker who can make these ideas better than mine and realize them and I could produce them, I would also yeah. do that. Sorry, to answer your question fully, when I realized I wanted to be in the film industry, and I'm saying film before TV because that's what my entrance was, Okay. I did arrive in the film industry or, or try to get into the film industry or even just before that I was like I want to be a filmmaker and I'll do anything to get into the industry mm -hmm. and then through my journey I realized actually I think I want to be a producer and I can't pretend it was like a an aha moment I want to be a producer yeah it was as a result of something else happening that I was like you know what I don't want to do that anymore and as I kind of referenced I started to work for this producer so I was like this could be the thing. You, I warned you that this wasn't going to be a half an hour. I know. Listen, it was. Listen, I want to go home and finish my emails. Um, what was I going to say? There's something you said. You said about entry point to TV again. What? Why? Why TV? Where? Where? Where do you come from before that? What was the thing? Well, so here's the thing, and and this is going to um, age me, but this is just the truth. When I got into the film industry and I'm talking like entry level when I was an intern and then an assistant people who worked in film didn't want to work in tv people that worked in tv wanted to work in film yeah and not often could they because film was very snobbish and can be and in in certain areas still is but that was the thing and obviously we're talking decades ago so you looked at tv and you were like why would I want to you couldn't even finish a sentence it was just like why would I <laughs> and I'm not trying to shit on tv producers especially those that got into their thing at that point in time. But that's a very specific thing. That's like, I want to be a TV producer because I want to do like, you know, factuals or because EastEnders is the best thing that Britain's ever done. And the transition into TV is an accident. It, the accident was the end of the fucking world, which entered my life in March, 2012 is when Jonathan shared me the comic books. For probably three to four years, we were trying to make an indie film out of this these comics that became a graphic novel. It was only in teaming up with this TV company called Clark and Well, who initially said, oh, yeah, indie films, we could do that. 
And then we're like, actually, what about television? So when they first asked us, have you thought about this as a TV series? Jonathan and I were like, nah. Because also, once again, we were like, why would we do that? <laughs> so the transition into TV was an accident in that regard. And I think I got it back to Frank. I think I thought you said that you were went TV first, then went into film, but it was film no. first and then. And film, so, exactly. But that's what I should have actually said. So when you were little, Dominic, is that what you were dreaming about making films? Or was this, again, was film just like? No, little, little version of me. I mean, it depends what age you're talking about, but there were years where I was like, I want to be a football player. I tried to couch this statement because we all know the discourse of like, you can either be a footballer yeah. or a rapper or a dot, dot, dot. Like I did go through the like, oh, I, maybe I'll be a rapper. Like, I mean, that didn't last long. That Wait, but hold on, no, do, do not dare, you don't. Did you, do you have a book of bars and I will ask you to recite some if you do, so you can obviously answer no, so to avoid that. I don't have a book of bars, and I don't have a book of bars for a reason, because I knew that one day in the future, I'd be talking to someone, and then they would force <laughs> me to recite some bars. No. Who were your rapper, your rapper inspiration, inspirers? I mean, I, I grew up on East Coast hip-hop before yes, West too. Coast hip-hop, right? So it's also because I lived in New York as a kid and oh. all these other things. So I would say when, when I got into hip-hop, it was Wu-Tang, it was Nas. I would say those two mainly, and, and maybe even Mob Deep. Similar, very same. I didn't know you grew up in New York. I lived in New York for two years. I lived in, I, so this is why we have to keep this on track. My dad <laughs> moved us to New York in 1987. Oh, okay. So I lived in New York, I was five years old, and uh, we lived in New York for two years. We lived in the Bronx, and I remember bits of it, but, you know, this is a separate conversation because it's about why did my dad move us to New York? I'll tell you a very quick story. So if you imagine many years later, when I'm in this industry, when I'm getting in, when I'm trying to move up, especially as a producer, and I want to move to New York as a producer, you know, and I said to my dad one day, and I can't remember exactly how old I was, but I said to my dad, dad, you know, we lived there as kids. Why don't we have visas? And he was like, oh, no, son, we were there illegally. And I was like, oh, OK, obviously. Thanks for potentially jeopardizing my, my career by all the times that I've been back and forth. But, you know, the thing here is that it was the 80s, it was the Reagan years. There's no record of little Dominic running around the Bronx. I mean, fine. <laughs> okay. What's your heritage? Are you. My dad's side is Jamaican and my mum is Welsh. Are you mixed race? No, my mum's mixed race. Uh -huh. um, so if we were to use quarters, then I'd be more than three quarters. I'm, I'm being very, um, well, you don't look mixed race, love. So, <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, you know, it's what it is. Um, so let's jump back to wherever the hell I was in this whole conversation. You're, a, you're you got into film because yeah, you watched New Jack City and thought, yes, I, that was so. That, that was, do you know what? That wasn't the film that I thought, yes, but I love that film. I really do. The truth is the films that I saw that, I knew even before I, I realized I wanted to work in the industry were those incredible escapist offerings, right? So I always say to people like, what are the first three films you remember? I'm going to answer my own question here. So forgive me. I'm not trying to take your job here. I definitely don't, not at this point. <laughs> um, so, you know, like E.T., for example, right? Sure. And just that magical nature to that film. And then The Golden Child, Yes. you know? Because I remember being petrified at the Golden Child. I remember yes. going to the cinema on an outing with like the community centre in Battersea where I grew up 
and like kids were screaming because like you know when the dragon bit like oh, i'm gonna spoil it for everyone that hasn't seen it but you know when he turns into a dragon yes like because charles dance was very scary in that film and also i think the bit that always freaked me out is, is it the blood out of the porridge yes type? the blood yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was a bit like come on now stop and that, that blood in the porridge was early early in the film <laughs> Yeah, that, and I was like, come on, this is enough, man. And I, and I also hate porridge. So it's like, come on, that's way too much. <laughs> that, that was an adult film. We shouldn't have been watching that film. <laughs> yeah, for real. Um, Robocop. And, and yeah, so in terms of like the escapist nature yeah. of things that if I was to drill into why I, I'm doing what I do, it's because of that level of entertainment, that level of escapism, that level of building worlds and telling stories and taking people on a journey. That's something that was in me early, that when I arrived into the industry, that helped drive me through. You're a South London from Battersea. So how yeah. dare you, South London black boy from Battersea, think you can go into freaking Hollywood? <laughs> how dare you? Were your parents like, yeah, cool, you want to get into film? Or was, you know, did you have the stereotypical, can you please get your ass into being something that's a bit more sensible? I had that from, well, I would say my grandma, she, she's no longer alive, but I only had one grandparent when I was born and she was on my dad's side, so my, 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 she was Jamaican. She was the part of the Windrush generation. And yeah. I would say in terms of the hardness of like, don't follow the bad breed kids, she gave those life lessons. Okay. She never said do accounting, like she never did that, but she yeah. was just very much like, don't do that. I mean, my parents split up when I was 12 or 13. Okay. And there were just moments throughout my childhood where other things were going on, so there weren't even those conversations about you should do this or you should do that. Just stay off I the think, Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it, was, it was more that, actually. Yeah. I think when I look back, I've, I've just been very lucky at certain points, right? So, for example, I grew up on an estate. Like, my mum still lives in the same block of flats that I grew up in. She's been there for 25 years or something. I only moved out of, of there, like, six years ago. My parents are working class. Like there was no way into the industry. There was no, like I am the oldest as well. So there was no older sibling that was like, hey, uh, such and such has got a link into, you know, I had to get into the industry myself. So I would say when I started to make certain moves and they started to piece together, they were very supportive. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was never like, why are you doing that? And my mum, she thought up until, you know, a certain amount of time that, I worked at the BBC. The classic thing of like, mama, I don't work at the BBC. Like fortunately now, like I've got projects that, that are with BBC films or whatever, but it's like, no, I've never worked at the BBC, mum. I've never told you that. <laughs> it's the best way to explain it. I think my mum just says, she's a British blacklist and I'm just, all the aunties are a bit like, the what, the British what? And it just, the conversation dies off, but I get it. They just need something that they can kind of- My dad understands it more, especially now. Well, also because I have certain achievements that have made it into, into the news. So yeah. his colleagues are like, oh, I saw this show and your last name, your last name, is that, are you related? Like, and he's like, oh no, that's my son. So he, for the first time, he's like, that's my son. Oh God, we all get it. Yeah, exactly. 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 That's, I think my, my, my mum is, she's bemused at best and I can't bother to break it all down. And she's mm. like, oh, aunties called me. They call, it's all the aunties and they all call yeah. and, oh, I saw your daughter. And then she's like, yes. Then she gets a bit proud. Other than that, then but then she'll also say, you know, I see Charlene White. That could have been you. I'm like, Mum, you don't know what I'm doing out here. But, <laughs> so I, I, whenever I speak to Charlene, I'm gonna say, can you just stop doing what you're doing because it's making my mum really angry that I'm not doing what you're doing. <laughs> what project is the best example of you being a real producer? And I, I think, and jokes aside, it's like really. Mm. 
either pushed you to your limit in regards to the skills that you have, but mm. really were like, you know, what? I'm a fucking real producer. I say that with my chest, actually. I wish I could just hone in on one. I think every single one of the things that I've done so far has shaped me further, right? But sure. when people say like, what's your favorite film that you worked on? It's like, well, they've all offered me so many different things. So for example, my first film, Gimme the Loot, was shot in New York. It's a New York filmmaker, like all the elements to it are American except for myself. And even though that film, I wasn't on set 100% of the time, I couldn't afford to be because I was in London. I remember the journey of getting that film made on the low budget that it was and winning that grand jury prize at South by Southwest. Because I And the reason I'm saying this is because I remember the choice I made of leaving that job working for that producer to go to Austin, Texas, to go to this, this film festival. Uh, not thinking that we were going to win an award, but just because in my head I was like, I might never make a film again. And if I miss the world premiere of the only film I've ever made, I'm yeah. going to be upset. And yeah, to have that as your first film. But then Lilting, my second film, I was the only producer. So that was a, a further education because on Gimme the Loot, I had other people that helped, you know. Whereas on Lilting, it was just me. And when I said earlier about nine years later, I'm still dealing with stuff from that film. It, it's not even a boast, it's just because I'm the only producer. Who else can it, people turn to or blame? Is that normal that you, nine years later you'll be dealing with shit from something? Yes, if it's bad, no, if it's good. As in like, if it's all gone well, that film would have done what it's done and it would wrap up quite nicely. And actually, sorry, let me break it down a little further because I want to be helpful to people that are listening. The typical cycle for a film, the typical timeline, when it's going well, at the best case scenario, from day one to the film coming out in cinemas, is on average three years, right? That's if it's going well. Let's say one year you're building it, one year you're making it, one year it comes out in those festivals and it goes into the cinema. That's why it's three years. Yeah. yeah. It can be shorter, but that there are other circumstances that have shortened it and supercharged it. So you're looking at, for most producers, five years, right? Because shit happens, like a film falls apart because the cast member that you were banking on wants to do something else or, yeah. you know their agents have pulled them out of your film to go and do this bigger film because it's a bigger payday. Or lots of other things, so you get to five years. So when I say nine years, you can imagine we had the five years and I thought, okay, we're good, we're done. Like I can move on, like well, I have moved on. But then you have, yeah, fallout. Um, fall you know, you've got a pretty diverse catalog of stuff that you've worked on as well. Did you ever, I mean, from Give Me The Loop, which mm. just from the title alone, I have not seen it implies there's a lot of blackness around that or was black themed black cast mm. at that point were you thinking i'm a black producer or were you like i don't want to be genre boxed yeah so gimme the loot is written and directed by a white man Ooh. um he was a friend before he's still a friend and he's from new york but the level of authenticity he knew he had to get into this film and that was through you know cast contributing to mm. dialogue and dialect and other things and he was very open with all this stuff so in my head I wasn't making a black film if you see what I mean even though the principal cast are African-American and there are some other races in there but I didn't think of it as like I'm making a black film yeah. but that being said when it came out and had its relatively decent success I did get sent every graffiti kind of like hip-hop-esque <laughs> film right so my thing is, my instinct is always, I don't want to repeat myself. So that's what has driven me. So I made Lilting. 
I did get sent Chinese ghost stories, even though Lilting is more nuanced than that. Yeah. You know, and it's about love lost and stuff like that. But it was like, why would I do a Chinese ghost story? And then, you know, did King Jack, which is more of a coming of age bullying film and got sent variations of that. So I oh. don't think I planned this at the beginning of my career, but I have been very conscious of like, I don't want to do that again. I've just done that. I don't see why I would return there at Precinct, that arena. Fair. Mm-hmm. Go on. So, but then, because being black is supposed to be really difficult and you're supposed to be like kept out of every room in Hollywood and you're not allowed to progress. They don't believe us. They don't think we're capable. So how come they trusted you even to the point you did something like Colette? You know, that's, that's a stereotypically it's period. It's, you'd think it was a white guy. They don't, they'd only approach white guys or whatever. No, but it is though. So, but, but, so Colette is, is because I worked for a Hollywood company that had a London office that I, I ran the London office. So this company made Drive, they made Nightcrawler, they made Whiplash. Okay. They helped produce and finance those films. And then they put me in charge of the London office, right? And the first film that came out of that London office was Colette. So there were other producers on that film. I could never pretend that there weren't other producers on this film. So number nine films, which is Elizabeth Carson and Stephen Woolley and Killer Films, which is Pam Coffler and Christine Vachon, they were the real producers behind Colette. But because of my role at Bold and Bold being a financier and uh, they like to call themselves producers and I'm a producer because they, they basically lured me into the company saying like, you're a producer, we're producers, come do what you want to do here we just got more money. Yeah. So of course I was like, well, if that's going to help me keep going up the ladder, why not? It's a yeah. great opportunity to meet talent and, and you're doing it at a whole different level because the floor uh, budgetarily for bold films was $10 million. Oh. They wouldn't make films less than $10 million and their ceiling was 30. So in my head, I was like, well, you don't see that in the UK. The economics are different. But in terms of when Colette came together, me being that person in the London office, me being the person that knew those producers and got to know them even better. And it was going to be shot in Europe. It was shot in Budapest and a little bit in the UK. I was able to make sure that I got a co-producer credit for my role. This is the theme of your interview, real producer, because it is that thing where like, okay, I'm an exec producer, I'm a co-producer, I'm a producer, but actually didn't really do much. I just got that producer credit. So how do we discern like, when you're up on the stage winning the award and stuff that this mm. is the producers, how do you discern who like who really does deserve it? And it's hard for outsiders to know. So I was on set 75 to 80% of the, 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 the whole shooting day on Colette, yeah. right? Bear in mind, I had a job, I was vice president of production and, and development at Bold Films, right? Yeah. We made this film called Colette. I'm the person, I'm the point person. I go out to do Colette. It just so happens at the very same time the end of the fucking world season one is shooting in the UK. And this is another defining moment in my life so far and career because I was torn. I'm in Budapest making the biggest film or working on the biggest film that I've ever worked on at that time. Whether you like her or not, she's an A-list actress, Kira Knightley. And my baby that at that point I've been working on for, um, several years is happening in the UK and I'm not there. And what I mean by that is like, I was there when you look at, season one of them in the fucking world. I was there for development. I was there for parts of prep, but it just so happened. Fate had decided it will shoot at the exact same time that Colette would shoot. But to answer your question in terms of like real producers, it's like, I know I was on set in Budapest on Colette 
for 80% of the time, you know? And even though, and, and that's why I, I, I said quite quickly, there were other producers, it was their film, their real producers too. Yeah. It's just that for Colette, I'm not the, the co-producer because I could have just got the co-producer credit by not being on set, by just turning up here and there, giving some notes, giving some feedback. That is the Hollywood way typically, right? But in my mind, I have life beyond bold. I don't want to ever be on a set that I'm not meant to be on. I don't yeah. want to be on a set that I'm not a part of or that I can't offer things, even though, you know, there's politics at play. There was only so much I could offer on Colette. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it kind of does. It's just, it was just because um, it's one of those how long is a piece of string because you just don't know till you don't know. But it is sometimes I have wondered like, okay, so if so-and-so superstar big name who's really booked and busy, but that they've got this mm. big, they've got the co or exec or whatever producer credit. It's like, did you actually do what I think I know producers do? Yeah, but it's, so it's different, right? So in the film world, you want to be the producer, right? You don't want to be the co-producer. You don't want to be the associate producer. The associate producer is typically the assistant. It's typically the person who you're trying to give a credit to that. I don't want to sound rude, but it is unfortunately truth. It, it's kind of like, it's assistant to someone, some principal person, right? You give the associate producer credit to. It's not meant to be that way. And it, it historically wasn't necessarily that way, I don't think. And um, the co-producer in the best possible sense is the co-producer. So if you look at co-productions with European countries, yeah. you have legit co-producers because you want to shoot in Belgium and you need that producer in Belgium to get that funding from Belgium. So you're true co-producers. But the other version of co-producers is, and actually this is on Colette, so the line producer, because line producers now typically get co-producer credit. But I'm not sitting here saying that the line producer on Colette didn't do her job. She did her job as a line producer, right? But she yeah. negotiated a co-producer credit as well. Where we turn it upside down. So in film, the exec producer is typically the person that gave the money or is tied to the money mm. or is of such a stature that why wouldn't you give them that credit, right? So when you look at your A-list stars, they stay as a producer because they want to build up their producer credits because you want to get your PGA mark so that you can win your Oscar and you get the Oscar. Okay. Okay. So you have to have a PGA to win an Oscar? The rules change recently. So you, 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 I think you need to make three films that have a PGA mark. The Producers Guild of America. Okay, cool. I can't remember the exact rules, but it's about, you know, how they qualify things now. Because the, the reason they did that is because people buy their credits, right? So let's go back to Bold for a second. Make no mistake, that production company, which is owned by a billionaire, that billionaire is putting money into that company mm. and films, and he is getting his producer's credits. So that hopefully one day that film wins an Oscar, he will get the Oscar himself because they've typically been denied because people were like, but you didn't produce the film. The producer produced the film. So what happened on the end of the fucking world when it comes to the batters? We will go backwards into this thing because... So this is what turns things upside down and confuses people. So in TV, you want to be the exec producer. Right. You don't want to be the producer. So that was the thing that I learned in that moment of not being able to be on set for the end of the fucking world season one. I didn't know this, by the way, this is an education that I learned through trauma and trial by fire. <laughs> but what happened was, so because I was producing, I was aiming to produce the indie film version of the end of the fucking world. The deal that I did when it became a TV show was that I would have first right to produce it. Yeah. Because in my head, I'm like, of course I want to produce it. It's mine. Like I'm, yeah. my Jonathan and myself is ours. Like he's going to direct it, I'm going to produce it. 
and then I'm, I'm going to jump because there's so much here, but I'm going to jump to parts of your question. So when I'm in on Colette and I'm there and I'm like, OK, so we had to hire a series producer to hands on produce the end of the fucking world. So that was this woman called Kate Ogbourne, who's fantastic. And she's a legit producer. She'd produced before. So we hired her to be the series producer of season one. What I didn't know is actually you don't want to be the series producer of a show because your power is in being the exec producer. So a producer in film is the equivalent of an exec producer in TV in terms of approvals and decision-making and okay. creative input and control. So on the end of the fucking world, I became an EP. I should have been an EP anyway, by the way, but through these, you know, kind of like sequences, I wasn't able to series produce. So if you look back in hindsight, these were wonderful moments that I didn't realize at the time. I then became an exec producer. So that's the position I should have been given anyway as an exec producer. But when you ask what happened, the issue is I've never made TV before at this point in time. So the other company is looking at me like, well, you're small fry. Why are we going to give you anything? Fortunately for me, I owned the option for the end of the fucking world. Go on, ask your question. You know, you know what I'm going to say, Mr. Real Producer, because <laughs> I'm not a real producer. I own the option of end of the fucking world. What the hell does that mean? It was a comic book that became a graphic novel. So you have to buy the rights to make a film or a TV yeah. show or whatever that. it is. I knew that. Really. Oh, I know you knew that. I know. But we're spelling it out for the audience, right? Thank you. Because um, we made, when we were going to make it as an indie film, right? So went to film four, they gave us some money mm. uh, in its very, very early incarnation. So because all these contracts and stuff were going through my company, Dominic Buchanan Productions. So when I say I own the option, it's because it was all going through my company. Yeah, 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 so yeah. when the other company had to deal with me, they had to deal with me, not just as an individual, but somebody that owned the option. I'm not going to say they gave me everything they didn't, but they had to give me a bit more than they typically give somebody else who doesn't own the option to something. Say you make a short film with the director, right? Or even a, a, a debut feature with a director. And they're like, I've got this idea for a TV show. And, and it, this also happens in film, but let's stick to TV for a second. And they've written up something, you've helped them with something. You take it to X production company. You get cut out quite quickly, right? Because the agent for the director is not there to protect you as the producer. So the director is being told, don't worry, we're going to sort all this out. We're going to figure all this out. But the production company just wants them. They don't want the producer. The producer's an albatross. So the producer is trying to figure out, well, where do I stand in this? How do I get a piece of the pie? The truth is in that moment, there is no piece of the pie for he or she, even though they deserve a piece of the pie because the bigger entity is like, well, we don't need to give you anything because this director is going to come over to us anyway. Okay. Now let's take a step back and let's say actually that the director does what they should do and say, no, if I'm bringing this to you, this producer's coming with me and we're making this together. Because the deals are done individually, that larger entity might say, okay, begrudgingly, we'll entertain this producer, but we're only going to give you slivers of things. So we'll give you 2% of this. We'll give you 5% of that. We'll give you dot, dot, dot. When really you should be getting 50% of that, 50% of that, and 50% of that. It's a mucky old game. It really is. And but so people you, don't know this, and I learned by accident. So then you challenged BAFTA and they agreed. So what happened was, in this particular case, let me uh, explain it better. So for season two, so up until recently, obviously, because they have changed now, BAFTA say 
there can be four entrants for best drama series, four entrants on the ballot, four yeah. roles. Yeah. And they say a writer, a director, a producer, and an exec producer. So if there's two directors, you have to choose one. If there's three directors, they have to choose one. Yeah. If there's two writers, they have to, you know what I mean? Like the short of all of this is that that larger entity is always going to say, well, it's us. Of course. We're putting our name down. And what recourse do you really have? And because of certain events, and this is why I've given you some nuance and detail here, because I couldn't be on set for the end of the fucking world season one because I was in Budapest. It's harder for me to say that, right? Even though there's a world where I, should, I, I could still say no, but you know, you don't have this without me. Yeah. But they already have the counter to that. They already have the, you know, yeah, but you needed us to make it or you did or yeah. duh, duh, duh. So that happened for season one. And in season two, they said, we think it should be such and such his name that goes on the thing. And I was like, okay, but if we win, I've always maintained is my name on application. And there's a reason my production company is yeah. called Dominic Buchanan Production. Because if you can't put my name down singly, my name is on the thing. Not to get too sticky into it, but at the same time, when they said, no, it should be this person that gets the thing, was that racism? <laughs> That's a big statement. Was that any kind of prejudice, bias, <laughs> or racism? Or was it any of that? Or was it literally? So, so here's the thing, right? I was being honest in my letter when I said, I don't think it was a racist act or maneuver to exclude sure. me from the list. However, to have four white names it just so happened that these names were white. It's kind of like, whoa, okay. And, and this is why when we talk about the industry and industries as in film and TV, the kind of systemic racism and, and the historical racism, this is the end result always, right? We get excluded, we get sidelined. We are always the collateral damage. In that moment, it wasn't a racist thing, but because the whole enterprise is founded on white supremacy, that's how you end up with the person, myself, who has been there from day zero, not being on the ballot. And then, because BAFTA themselves, they don't look at this and go, whoa, hold on a second, this doesn't make sense because that yeah. guy did that. Because yeah. they pushed the onus to the production company, right? They're like, well, the production company put the application in. Yeah, so it's not our responsibility. So it's not our responsibility. Let me say this, right? Because I spoke to the chief executive of BAFTA, Amanda Berry, the top person at BAFTA when this all went down. And she asked me all these questions. And the thing is, every single question she asked me, my answer unraveled more things because that's how broken the system is. So as an example, they say up and cause it's changed now. So we are talking about the past, but they said the director that gets named is based on the episode you put in, right? I'm like, okay, I understand that conceptually, but then actually how do we win best drama based on one episode? And what do you do about the multiple directors on, on the show? What BAFTA didn't understand what they were doing is they were upholding a culture of bullying in this industry. Because by them not changing their rules and sticking to, but these are the rules, these are the rules. By them doing that, they're allowing these larger production companies to say, it's us, you're small fry. It goes through us, you're small fry. Our name's on the ballot, you're small fry. It's us. And as you said, the film industry is so clusterfucky, <laughs> kind of incestuous and who you know and you can't sit with us type thing in my opinion anyway that's maybe maybe because you're a but both of the both of the no and but TV both and film and tv yeah, yeah. True, true, true. there's golden circles you know and there's yeah. golden circles in in the golden circle okay so end of the fucking world mm -hmm. great fantastic series actually 
I, well done very much. Really good. What episode really is like, yeah, that's my favorite fucking episode, man. That's really, that really is the vision of the dream of this series. Season one, it would be, I think it's episode three that Jonathan did. And season two is episode seven. So season two, episode seven. And I'll talk about that one because that's probably in people's conscious in, more. Yeah. So this is a, an episode that Destiny, a character directed. And it's the episode where Bonnie has James and Alyssa hostage in the diner. And we think she might kill them. She wants to kill them. That's my favorite episode because <laughs> obviously this is very biased, right? But I know how hard that was to pull off. I know how hard it was for certain wins to happen. It's the quietest episode. Like there is score, but there's no soundtrack. There's no typical, uh, we got known for like the kind of soundtrack that got slapped on, the musical tracks that got slapped yeah. on, but, yeah, yeah. but episode seven is, is quiet. Naomi Aki, her performance in that episode is incredible. And that's not to be dismissive of, of Jessica Barden and Alex Lawford, they're very good. It's just that that's the episode where you're like, holy fucking shit. And she had to win a BAFTA, she had to win for this. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't think you could come close to that performance in that category that year. Destiny, I just want to say Destiny Ekaraga and Naomi Aki. I've said this to them and I'll keep saying that I'm in awe of them. And actually I'll, I'm going to throw in Carmel Cochran into this mix of because course she has. And, and we, we, you know, we have a little WhatsApp group and I can say this now because it's come out into the world, but Naomi Aki has just been announced to play Whitney Houston. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm just astounded. Of course she can do it. It's not me thinking astounded that she got that role. How has that happened? It's just her rise because I know some of her struggles. Like I know some of the struggles of Destiny. I know some of the struggles of Carmel. So those women, I mean, I, I can't wait to work with them again, ASAP. That's nice to hear because I guess it's that divide and conquer thing, whether we do it to ourselves or the industry splits us up and having too many black people in a room, it's, oh my God, it's turning into this whole black gang thing. And also being a black man in position, is there, I know there's like a black renaissance in the UK for sure, a talent renaissance. For sure, for sure, yeah. Is there, are, are we getting powerful enough in quotes to uh, set up our own black Hollywood in the British because of brolly, brilly, I don't know what to <laughs> Brilly, bolly, blacky words. I don't yeah, know. I know what you mean. I, 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 I wish it? I could say, yes, we can do it right now. I don't think we can. And this isn't about talent. I don't want people to think that I'm saying that our filmmakers and our actors are not talented enough. What I am going to say is we don't have the capital yet to yeah. do it. The reason that it looks better and it exists better in the US, in Hollywood, is just because the finances are bigger, the economics are bigger. So there's more of us that have one out there that yeah. now have economic power. Yeah. Whereas over here, who can you look at that has that economic power? I mean, And I'm not in any way trying to be dismissive of the achievements of generation just above me, for example. There are bosses out there. There are black producers doing it filmmakers doing it it's just I don't feel like we've got the capital to do it we can come together but even then we still have to go to them to get some money right yeah so we could do this tomorrow we could do this next year we could all come together a couple of filmmakers actors writer put together a tv show we could go and take that package to anybody and they will say yes but let's break it down the person saying yes mm. more than likely is going to be somebody white the person that's going to be figuring out the economics and what they should be giving us, the business affairs of it all, mm. is going to be somebody white. And they don't value us in the same way. So yes, we could go to all these places, but I'm just going to make this up, right? Instead of 100 million for, for this TV show, we might be offered 50 million. I'm going to be even harsher and say we'd realistically get 10. 
So I feel like we're still being undervalued in that manner that when, if we were to bring something together and go to them, they wouldn't give us what we're due. Mm. So that's why I say, I don't think we can do it just yet. I don't think anyone would disagree with you. It's just interesting because I, I, I like the feeling that we've got, there's a crew of us out there that you can, even if you're mm. the bluest, only black in the room day, there are a bunch of other people that you can lean on where before you really would be the only black in the room and you wouldn't have anyone to relate to because there's no one mm. in the industry that understands what's going on. So I definitely feel that camaraderie community that's building, but I don't think anyone would dispute the fact that wealth is not there. I don't know what generation will have it, but so you've gone off and you made a, decided to set up a production company. Yeah, so you know what it was? After the success of season one, I got a few offers, different types of financing, different types of deals, right? I went to LA in March 2018, three months after it came out on Netflix. And I came back to London with a deal from Paramount TV for a first look deal. Now, when you asked me earlier about being a kid and, you know, younger version of Dominic and getting into the industry, I can honestly say the mountain and the stars of Paramount is a moving logo I saw and still like would love on the front of one of my films, right? To go to LA, and I've been to LA quite a few times, uh, but to go to LA, to go to the Paramount lot, which I'd never been before, to go into a meeting, I went in there to extract information because that's where what I was thinking about was like, I need to further my knowledge. So I go in there with that purpose, but halfway through this guy says to me, so has Netflix offered you a deal yet? And I'm like, factually, Netflix had not made any offer for a deal with me, right? However, factually, the very next day, I was meant to go to Netflix in LA to go meet some of the people there. So the quickest thinking I've probably done in my career, I sat back and and I said, I'm seeing them tomorrow. And he said to me, well, I want to offer you a deal today. Obviously, internally, my head is spinning. Of course. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Went back in for a follow-up conversation, met the head of Paramount TV. They made their offer. I came back to London with this offer. And I have a very good lawyer. And when this offer came in, when I looked at it, I was like, and bear in mind, like, this is a new level of Sonic the Hedgehog, right? This is a new level of Mario that I've not achieved. So instinctively know something's up, but I don't know what it's meant to look like. Something's up. So I speak to my lawyer finally, and he said, look, he said, Dominic, this offer does not represent the conversations you've been having and what you told me about. And I was like, I knew something was up. And he broke it down for me. And he said, this is not a real offer. They're looking for a talent scout and they're dressing it up yeah. as a first look deal. And that's why all these figures are off, off key. So when he broke it down to me like that, I was like, what the fuck? Now, I got another offer for a first look deal from Eleven, a production company that made sex education. So I said to my lawyer, I was like, look, let's try and move Paramount to where we want them to be because they're a studio. And in my head, I'm still in that. That would be incredible. Like that press release based off me coming out of season one and then the fucking world, I've signed a deal with Paramount. That's sending shockwaves through the industry. So it's like, let's move that to where we want it to be. They wouldn't budge, right? But I'm saying to them, I have another offer. <laughs> you know yeah. that moment and you're like, when you're like, I'm not fabricating this. Like we've been in those moments where you're like, look, I've got another offer. You don't have it. You're like, you're bluffing, yeah. right? I legit had another offer. Yeah. They move like 1%, right? So I walked away from this deal. This is 2018. We're jumping forward to like August, 2018. There was a new story that broke and, and I just come back from America for a different trip, I think. I'm jet lagged, I'm in bed staring at Twitter and Instagram on my phone. A new story broke. The head of Paramount TV had just been fired for being racist. So I'm, I'm actually like a madman in my own house, on my own, laughing to myself, like, what the fuck is going on? Oh. This is insane, right? Closed the deal with Eleven, ended up doing a first deal with Eleven for a year. 
that deal that I walked away from, I didn't know they were racist. But seeing that was like, whoa, the bullet I dodged, let's say I signed the deal, whatever version of, of it, right? They would have rolled you out. When this come out, they would have rolled, they would have rolled me friend. out. <laughs> I would have been the black friend in the UK, because that's what the point. They would have been like, no. we're working with. <laughs> yeah. So here's another thing, right? A year later, sorry, this is a long way to answer your question, but I want to share these things. A year and a half later, so November 2019, I got introed into a conversation for an overall deal. So it's not a first look deal, it's a bit more than that. They give you a bit more money, they take a bit more control. With, I'm actually not going to say who this is because... <laughs> okay. The biggest rapper in the world, he, he's got interest in film and TV now, right? And I'm going to say it, it was Drake. So Drake's company offered me an overall deal. Yeah. And I met the agent helping to broker the deal that they're signed to. And, yeah. you know, we had a great meeting, a great connection, a great conversation. This is another trip that I'm out in LA. And Bennett and I, home team hadn't formalized then. It wasn't a thing. But we got so deep into conversations. We were like, whatever money comes, we're going to do it together, right? But the truth is the deal was so rubbish, we walked away. It's weird to say that because the press release that would have come from doing that deal. And this is the biggest rapper in the world. And, and that doesn't necessarily translate into like, the, he's not the biggest film producer, the biggest TV producer. Yeah, yeah, world, for but sure. That is big. That's, you know, uh, whatever word you want to use. So the reason I'm telling you this is because when Bennett and I were talking about home team, the money that we found for home team that has now set us up and launched us was so straightforward and simple compared to these other things and they they of course they're investors so there are certain things that we do have to concede on right but the way our business is set up is that the projects are ours yes. right the money is ours to spend we don't have to ask anybody to spend this money you know in our business plan all that type of stuff once again like don't get me wrong there are certain things that we need to show the investors in terms of like profits and all that shit and you know, they're strategic investors, so they want to see, you know, X times the amount of money they put in, all that stuff. But I'm just talking about day-to-day -day business. It is ours. Yeah. There is no conversations outside of board meetings. We have autonomy. We have creative control. And the other deals that I walked away from wouldn't have given us those things, mm. unfortunately. And I'd love it to be the other way around. I'd love to be sitting here saying to you, I did a deal with Drake and his company, and I have these things, but they didn't want to give it to us. Well, first of all, it's like... You did it. You did take me over the time that I said I was going to get on my train and go home. We, we'll, we'll wrap up. We'll wrap it's up. Fine. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. You keep telling me gems. It's fine. I know. I'm, I'm open to hearing more gems. It's fine. It's fine. But what I was going to say, um, it's, it's this thing about ownership and it's understanding the art of the deal, isn't it? And Exactly. Get, get, and as you said, that press release would be amazing. And other, I say young in the industry, not young by age. Mm, for sure. Press for to sure. it. That you would think like, look, the Drake, the Paramount, and then you get done over. Would you say that all your experience in the world, all the experience you had up until that point, gave you the confidence and the hindsight or the foresight to be like, yeah, these, Paramount, I'm walking away, and Drake, you can be the biggest, bloodiest rapper in the world, but I'm definitely not giving you all of that. Out of that deal where he had, I say he, his people representing mm. him, deal, if they had full ownership where you didn't have that, was there any way it could have been like, look, do this, have that press release, blow your name up and then mm. later on that works or was it was like I don't need that I'm already there so it's just fine well, Where did it yeah work? no and, and and that's a great question because I, I actually had thought about that at the time yeah so if that Drake deal had landed on my table a year earlier 
at the time that Paramount deal came in, right? And obviously it didn't happen this way. We can't rewrite history. This is an alternative universe I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. But if that Drake deal arrived when that Paramount deal would, would have, I would have taken the Drake deal for sure. Right. Because of what you're saying, it would have brought my price up. I would have been focused on doing what I need to do because my mindset was slightly different in terms of my needs. But a year later, where I know I need real money, like it's not about first look deals right now. It's not about overall deals right now. It's about real investment yeah. to give me the capital that allows also for me to have the autonomy to achieve some of the things I want to achieve. So I always give these caveats because I realize that I am blessed where I'm at right now, especially where the world is right now. But just to be very transparent with you, and this will sound super corny, but it is the truth. And I didn't know this until after the fact, it wasn't designed this way. But the biggest gift that season one at the end of the fucking world of all the success, the biggest gift it gave me was the ability to say no. And I realized that in that moment, right? But then the further part of this education is I then realized what I need to do, what I'm striving to now do. Now I know that I can say no. It's about furthering the ability to say no. So after season one, I had nine months of just being able to say no, like straight no's, no consequences until something came up. Then I needed to bridge a gap of time, which is into season two, right? Because once season two was happening, it's like, all right, that furthered my ability to say no for another two years. So all of a sudden I've got three years of saying no. And I'm talking about like worst case scenario, nothing's working, nothing's popping. Three years of saying no. Don't get me wrong, at the end of that, I need to do something. <laughs> but the power in that, I realized of being able to say no, being able to walk away from things. It allowed me to not have to fuck around and mess around and toy with things and entertain things that I shouldn't have wasted energy and time on. Because I could just be like, nah, see you later. And mean it. So that's what it is as well. Well, how did you meet Bennett? It's funny you ask this because we just hired someone, right? And, and they asked us and we couldn't remember because we've known each other for probably, I think it's 12 years. And he's two years older than me, but we came into the industry around similar time. It's like we were assistants and he was one of the only black male producers, mm. um, let alone black producers in our generation um, at the time. So I think somehow we just gravitated towards each other. Home team, can you tell us about anything you're working on or is it all top secret? The thing that we're excited about that we're hoping to happen next year, 2021 for us is Shola Amu's next feature. Hopefully it'll be his next feature. I say this because today, and I don't know when this is gonna go out, so this is gonna be a dated comment, but he's just got announced the Muhammad Ali film that Fox Searchlight are, are doing. So I'm saying, I'm sitting here saying to you, I'm excited about doing Shola's next film. He might be doing the Ali film next and we might be doing the film after, but at the moment, as of right this second, we're meant to be up next and that's what we're excited by. Well, that's amazing. Love Shola. So that's going to be huge. What's the best thing about the job and the worst thing about your job? The best thing is the past two years and especially my new job as a founder and co-CEO of, of Home Team. When I wake up, for the most part, I have the day that I want to have. I did this anyway, but I'm not waking up early in the morning to do meetings. If I do a morning meeting pre, let's say 10 a.m., it has to be about finance. So one of the best things is just being able to like wake up and just have the conversations you want to have. And that's something that I didn't realize I was striving towards uh, when I got into this industry. But where I'm at now, it makes me so happy that most of the time I'm only having the conversations I want to have. The worst part of it, you know, we're talking a week before Christmas. The fact that people think that things need to land in your inbox, it's not having control of your inbox. Just things arriving and landing that you're just like, why have you sent me this? Or why have you asked me this question or why? And I get it. I've been on the other side, so I know the energy you're trying to get. But oftentimes they're so wide of the mark. <laughs> it's very I, rare for me to look at this 
unsolicited thing and be like, that's exactly what I want. Or this is super exciting. Unsolicited leads me on to how the hell do I get my script to you? Obviously, I, obviously. <laughs> I mean, well, for you. It's... Obviously, I can obviously. do all my scripts and they will all get made. Obviously, but the average, <laughs> I mean, how are you looking for ideas and what are you, how are you doing it? I would say it is through someone of note and significance. And what I mean by that sure. is yeah. your agent or mm-hmm. your lawyer, let's say, but preferably your agent. Sure. Or let's say you've just done a short film with the BFI, right? Yeah. Get the BFI, get someone there to, to message me. You know what I mean? Like, it's like when the unsolicited lands, like I'm looking at it and, and it's because I get so many, right? Uh, so this isn't me being like, I don't want to see anything. It's just, I get so many. And the other curse is this thing called Instagram exists and everybody hits you up on Instagram. Now, I appreciate that, especially the younger generation, this is the medium that people communicate on. But there are certain conversations that should just be had professionally. And sorry, this is not meant to turn into a rant, but when people say, I just need 15 minutes, it's not 15 minutes. It's a half an hour conversation. When I say half an hour, it's not, it's an hour, right? When someone says to me, can you just read this thing? It's a short film. That's not 10 minutes because you want me to respond. By the way, we've got info at hometeamcontent.com. Uh, what's made you sad, mad and glad this week? Mad. <laughs> I will say without going into rent, and sorry, this is repetitive, but the culture of I need to get this in before the end of the year. What makes me sad is I'm seeing it with friends that are writers where they're being told you need to send us this thing by Friday the 18th of December. Yeah. I know for a fact, those motherfuckers aren't reading it over Christmas. Sorry, I, you were going to say something. And, no, no, I was going to say, and it's not the end of the fucking world if you don't get it in by the 18th. I mean, listen, don't, thank you for saying that because I would never, ever, ever do that. Funny jokes. What's made you sad this week? What's made you glad this week? What made me sad? I mean, looking at the news, there's so many different things that are going on. And, you know, whether it's just the continuous ignorance and failures of the Grenfell, I don't even know what to call it at this point, a new story this week about cladding and anyway, there's that, that made me sad. And and yes, looking at the news, unfortunately, just makes you sad. But what's made me glad, (laughs) this is such a boring answer, so I'll think of another one. I can't wait to get to the end of this week so I can shut down and not respond to anybody. I need nourishing, I need to realign, I need to restore said lost energy, I need to, revitalized i need all the reads right that's not boring that's do you know what? it's a pre-glad because it hasn't happened yet so you're pre-glad about that yeah no for sure i mean all right because I, I, I sound like an old man i mean i am an old man at this point probably i looked at instagram and saw some foolishness that just made me laugh out loud <laughs> that's what makes me happy about instagram is just you look at certain things and i'm crying of laughter i have no <laughs> idea how it got me but it got me <laughs> and this your answer made me glad thank you dominic thank thanks for having you. me i'm not even mad that it is a whole hour after the time <laughs> i finished this conversation i warned you you did warn me this is very good but you also gave me good conversation so i'm not like gonna walk out of the office and have fucking talking shit in my ears <laughs> i'm not gonna yeah, do yeah. that so, I appreciate that. Well, thank you for having me and I and, and I appreciate your platform and everything that you do. Um, have a good evening. Bye. Bye.